As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. Don't assume you know other people's motives and what's in their heart. It's one thing to say, I disagree with a policy. Like right. you might say, I think that elementary schools in my state should be open sooner than the government or other people saying they're open. Well, there can be legitimate policy disagreement, legitimate health Uh, you know, care, disagreement, but don't assume the other side's evil or wrong or, you know, that's just dangerous when we get into these sorts of uh, right. policy disagreements. Evil is far too big a word, far too big a word to be used with such little uh, discretion. It's a very big word, and it does, as you pointed out, it applies to certain things for sure, but most of the time when we have disagreements with someone over the kinds of issues that you've talked about and will continue to talk about here, it's not evil that we're talking about, it's disagreement. And we've become, in some cases, so either entrenched or so kind of uh, stickumed to our viewpoints that when someone comes along with a different viewpoint, it's easy to characterize them. It's too easy sometimes to characterize them as evil. And that has real world ramifications. Indeed, it does. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, the co-host of the show, the communications director for Crucible Leadership, and the owner of The Voice that just ended that snippet you just heard. That clip comes from a conversation Warwick and I have on this week's episode about the dangers of divisiveness when it extends beyond disagreements over ideology and veers into losing sight of another person's humanity. Warwick shares several tips about what we can all do to prevent that from happening, from making an intentional effort to push past the comfort zones of our media and relational echo chambers to seeking first to understand, not change the mind of, someone with whom we disagree. The benefits of taking these tips to heart and putting them into practice can help you avoid crucibles, get through crucibles that have already occurred, and maybe, just maybe, find unlikely companions to join you as you pursue your life of significance. We live in a divided world where it seems like we can group ourselves into camps and there's a tendency to view the other camp, whatever that might be, as the enemy. Not just that we disagree with them, but they're the enemy, they're, they're bad people, they're misguided, and it creates a sense of hostility. I mean, it's certainly in the U.S., um, this last year couldn't have been more divided um, politically, 
There was divisions over race, you know, dating back, that dates back hundreds of years, systemic racial issues. And it's really was uh, the capstone, in a sense, was the assault on the Capitol uh, building. Right. Just, um, I feel like it's days ago. It doesn't feel like it was that long ago. And we live in Annapolis, Maryland, which is about 30 miles from the Capitol building. It's not that far away, which was obviously a tragedy. Lives were lost, and that's taking division to a level that it should never uh, get to. So there are those issues, and even with um, things like healthcare, with COVID, everybody's concerned, everybody wants to get the vaccine, but there are divisions. There are some people who are very careful and don't leave uh, their homes and um, taking it very seriously. I have to say, we probably are more on the careful end of the spectrum. Right. And some of those people say, you know, just listen to Dr. Fauci. It's about the science. And others say, look, you know, you guys are being too cautious. We're going to live our life. And some people would, you know, go out and party, which, you know, obviously some of us think is not the smartest thing in the world. But then you have divisions over more complex issues like the opening of schools. If you have elementary school kids, it's been tough just to keep them locked down over the last year. And so then, you know, you lose a year of education. So some people think kids aren't as likely to get the COVID-19. So what do you do about school closings? What about restaurants and businesses that may go under because of strict lockdown? So even there, it's easy to say just follow the science. And it's hard to disagree with that, but there are disagreements over size to a degree. There are disagreements over how that's applied. So even with something like COVID-19, where you think, well, why would people disagree over that? It's like, be sensible, be safe, wait for the vaccine. Well, it's not that simple. From school closing to businesses to restaurants, that's just one small example. But it's, I feel like in some sense, you could say that certainly in this country and maybe beyond, People are as divided as they've been in decades, maybe since the Vietnam War, I don't know, but there's massive division. And with that division, I mean, it's nothing new, right? Division over over anything is nothing new. Uh, and you know this, if you have a family or if you have a community or if you have a business, I mean, we know that there's division that occurs. But one of the things that you really wanted to address is this idea that you can disagree. I mean, I've heard it expressed as you can disagree without being disagreeable, but it's the level of animosity that is ginned up by these disagreements. The working title for the blog that you've written on this subject is Don't Assume the Other Side is Evil. And I think that's where it's, yes, there's tension. Yes, there's disunity. But it goes to the point that the other person's not just wrong in our minds sometimes. The other person is evil. And that really degrades relationship and community. That's very true. And, you know, I want to just be clear here. I'm not saying that evil doesn't exist in the world. Right. I prefer not to try to call people evil because that means examining somebody's soul and claiming you know what's in their heart. I think from my faith-based perspective, only God knows what's in our hearts. But I think we can objectively look at actions and say those actions are evil acts. So whether it's somebody like uh, Stalin or you know Adolf Hitler and World War II and uh, you know three million uh, Jews being uh, killed, those are clearly evil and acts. So it is possible to say that certain acts 
uh, reprehensible, assaulting the Capitol, uh, people dying. Yes, it's easy to, you know, it can be correct to say that's reprehensible. And so while there is evil in the world, there are evil acts, I think it's dangerous to accuse people who disagree with you as being quote unquote evil. Right. And so labels get hurled around in our dialogue. People are called Nazis, fascists, socialists. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are dangerous terms. I mean, Nazis probably being, you know, one the, maybe one of the most dangerous terms you can use uh, that should not be used lightly and can be seen to minimize what happened in World War II. So, I mean, there is evil, but don't always assume the other side's evil. Be wary of using motives. And, you know, I mean, we'll get to this more in terms of some uh, thoughts and pointers, but just don't assume you know other people's motives and what's in their heart. It's one thing to say, I disagree with a policy. Like you might say, I think that elementary schools in my state should be open sooner than the government or other people saying they're open. Well, there can be legitimate policy disagreement, legitimate health, uh, you know, care disagreement, but don't assume the other side's evil or wrong or, you know, that's just dangerous when we get into these sorts of uh, policy disagreements. Evil is far too big a word, far too big a word to be used with such little uh, discretion. It's a very big word, and it does, as you pointed out, it applies to certain things for sure, but most of the time when we have disagreements with someone over the kinds of issues that you've talked about and will continue to talk about here, it's not evil that we're talking about, it's disagreement. And we've become, in some cases, so either entrenched or so kind of uh, stickumed to our viewpoints that when someone comes along with a different viewpoint, it's easy to characterize them. It's too easy sometimes to characterize them as evil. And that has real world ramifications. And one of the things that you tried to unpack and you do an excellent job of unpacking in the blog, which will be out, if not by the time this airs, uh, will be out soon thereafter. And you can find that blog at crucibleleadership.com. One of the things you try to do is not only explain how this comes about, what the challenge is before us, but how to sort of how to meet that challenge and rise above that denigrating language, that disparaging language, that dangerous, if you will, language of thinking of disagreements with yourself as evil. It's absolutely true. And I think one of the images that came in my mind of, you know, you can have uh, a forest like in California or in Australia, kind of earlier, uh, earlier in the year, it's funny, pre-COVID, there were bushfires down the east coast of Australia that were as bad as they've ever been. And that seemed to be the cataclysm of 2020. Well, who knew that a short while later that it wasn't the cataclysm, we were entering COVID. But there's a number of accelerants, if you will, that mm-hmm. are um, causing these fires to be worse. Certainly in our political system, uh, there are political action committees on the left and right, and they have a vested interest in saying the other side is evil and saying if the other side wins control of Senate, presidency, Congress, whatever the issue is, the world's going to end. And they raise money because you don't raise money by saying, well, you know, I think the other, side has, the other <laughs> side has good points. Right. And so our proposition is to find some harmony in the middle. Well, that just doesn't do it for people. People are often motivated out of anger and rage. And, and fear. So and fear, absolutely. I mean, you know, what do the political consultants say? Uh, the best ads are ones that are negative ads and appeal to people's fear because studies show it works. 
Right. And therefore, positive ads may be uplifting, but don't tend to work as much. Very sad to say. And then the other accelerant, if you will, is social media. Mm-hmm. Now, in the Vietnam War era, and gosh, I think probably it was only more in the two, early 2000s that, that social media began to take off from uh, Facebook, Twitter, you know, all these different uh, mediums of social media. There are things you say on social media that you would never say to somebody to their face. Right. Or about somebody you don't know. So the combination of money and, and politics, uh, fueling division, uh, profiting of division, and social media, it makes the underlying tendency for people to, you know, stay in their people groups and only associate with people they know. It just, it makes that, it's an accelerant. It makes it so much worse, those factors of money and politics and social media. And as we begin the segue into talking about actions we can take, things we can do to drop the rhetoric down and to avoid the even the thought, the impulse of thinking that someone's evil because they disagree with us, it's important to sort of frame this up in the context of crucible leadership, in the context of crucibles. One of the things that can be an accelerant that is just circumstantial is a crucible moment. What we're mm-hmm. talking about, about the pandemic and the views of the pandemic that people have, that's a crucible. I've heard it described as a collective crucible that we go through. When we're going through hard times, when we're going through setbacks and failures and those kinds of things, we are we are raw and we can, on social media, in relationships, lash out and think not just the worst of someone who disagrees with, uh, with us, but we can think you know, the really absolute worst. They're evil. There's something innately not good about who they are. It's not just a a difference of opinion. It's almost a difference in humanity. We dismiss them as not having humanity or not having the right to have their humanity acknowledged. And I think in crucible moments, those situations become even more potentially incendiary. Yeah, I think that's so true. I mean, you know, if you've been fired by a, a boss or a company, sometimes you'll think, well, maybe I had a role in that. Often you'll be thinking, well, my boss is terrible and awful. Right. And, you know, there's a tendency to think when bad things happen to you that, you know, you're sort of uh, pure as the, you know, driven snow, if you will, on the other side's evil. Because, right. you know, accepting responsibility or that there could be issues that both of you have yeah, I mean, that is certain human nature. And, you know, probably the other side of it uh, beyond that is we all tend to be in different uh, people groups. It could be where you grew up. It could be, you know, ethnic. It could be country. It could be uh, cultural, uh, urban versus rural. It's easy to take on the views and philosophy of whatever people group you were from, which is understandable. But then what's not so good is assuming that people who are different than you, whether it's political viewpoint, race, or what have you, are somehow wrong or, or somehow bad. There is this natural tendency, human tendency to congregate in people groups and listen to those people groups and assuming the other people groups are somehow wrong right. or even worse than wrong. Right. Self-interest is not always in the public interest. If yeah. it's taken to an extreme self-interest, there's we are a pluralistic society. We are um, people with lots of different opinions, and that is as good of a place to sort of segue Warwick into the points that that you've developed on you know just how to build unity 
in the midst of these diverse viewpoints and diverse people groups that we all live among and that we haven't as a collective been doing a very good job of in the last six months, 10 months, 12 months. We've got some work to do in this area for sure. Absolutely. And really the first point is what we've been talking about is don't assume the other side is wrong. When I say the other side, what does that mean? Well, think of your own life. What people group do you think that you're in? It could be racial, ethnic. It could be, well, I think of myself as an engineer and, you know, I'm not one of these creative uh, folks who continually, you know, want to re-engineer everything and make my life, you know, miserable at work. I mean, whatever people group is relevant to you, really the, the question is, in my mind, you know, where do you... You know, in which group that you're in, often you could be in a, you know, in a nationality group, an ethnic group, a profession group, a sporting group. There's all sorts of group, multiple groups that we're self-identified with. Which one of those do you have the most angst in? Some groups, you know, it's not really a big deal. Some people get really hot and bothered about sports. Others like sports, but the world's not going to end if their team loses. You know, so well, I don't know. I feel sometimes like my world's <laughs> going to end if my team, if my Cubs or Packers lose. But that's a different podcast. Well, I, I'm with you. I'm as, a, <laughs> as Australian. I'm a huge cricket fan. Australians care about cricket the way Canadians care about hockey. So right. uh, it's easy to get too emotionally involved in sports, which would be another podcast. So I'm, I'm with you. But whatever that is, whatever the other side means for you, which depends on which people group you feel that you're in that you have the most angst about. Don't assume that they're wrong or evil or wrong-headed, you know. And so that really is the launching point of really the first key point is, you know, try to understand the other side. That's right. really the, I mean, first step is don't assume they're wrong and evil. Okay, right. so having made that leap of faith, you know, innocent until proven guilty, right. then kind of the next step is, well, try to understand them. And, you know, where this is, is hard is that, we live in a um, not only divided society, but a divided media society. Right. And so people increasingly tend to watch their news channel or read their online news of choice that agrees with their opinion. It could be political, it could be social, and that just increases your internal rage. The other side's awful. Well, right. I, I read it online. I watch my news channel. They agree with me. Right. Well. How about watching another news channel, even if you disagree with it, or read another online source, uh, another media outlet, and just get perspectives from the other side, even if you don't agree with it. It's like, well, I disagree with 70% of it, but 30% of what they said, they actually have a point, which I hadn't considered. Right. So that's one thing is try to understand the other side. And one initial way is just by viewing media and getting input from different sources, different books. I mean, there are, we have a lot of information at our fingertips, you know, utilize that opportunity. Absolutely. And echo chambers are dangerous places to live. They're not just to hear reinforcements of what you believe all the time. It doesn't challenge you. And, and it goes against the grain of what we talk about at Crucible Leadership all the time. What do we say in Crucible Leadership? You've been through a crucible. The key to moving beyond your crucible is to learn the lessons of your crucible. Slow down, stop. What was my fault? What did I? What is trying to be taught me in this experience? How can I learn from this experience? Similar thing can play out when you hear things that you don't agree with. If you're only consuming that which you agree with, you're not being challenged to overcome 
your uh, feelings about the other side. I wrote, Warwick, uh, an op-ed a little over a year ago for a publication, and this is one of the things I said, and I I just want to read this because it goes in great line with what you've just said in the last couple of points. I wrote this. It's only in seeing the quote-unquote other guy as just as, as deserving as we are of respect and an opinion and the right to advocate for his or her position that we can ever hope to find our way to civility in public discourse. The immediate and ongoing demonization of those who think differently than we do, whose values don't align with our own, may make for baffle ratings, but it does nothing to help us persuade others to the course of action we believe to be right. Worse, it degrades the greatest and freest country in the world. I mean, that's so true. It's funny, you know, just thinking about this this morning, I can think of a figure from history, Winston Churchill, that nobody could accuse him of not having strong opinions. He had very strong opinions. <laughs> yes. And was one of the most eloquent advocates of his opinions in the English-speaking world. His speeches are as good as any. I mean, Lincoln was up there, but you think of Lincoln, Churchill, their ability to express themselves in a way that was compelling was almost unprecedented. But yet... You know, he obviously in the 1930s was railing against uh, pacifism and saying, you know, we need to wake up to Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany and uh, we need to rearm. And everybody thought he was, you know, uh, silly old Winton and warmonger and just ignoring him. But yet he never took disagreements personally. And Mm -hmm. so later when he was prime minister, there was, I can think, three different people that he was very magnanimous with. Stanley Baldwin, Baldwin, a former prime minister, in the 30s of Britain, uh, Neville Chamberlain, who famously said, I've met Mr. Hitler and we've, we'll have peace in our time, which right. one of the colossally uh, yeah. terrible statements. He's uh, waving he, his piece of paper. I can still see him in the newsreels, right? Waving yeah, his piece of paper. Exactly. He needed a good PR guy or somebody to say, don't <laughs> say that. <laughs> Are you yeah. really sure? But, you know, he would you know, try to help them where he could, meet with them. He didn't hold it personally. And later in, in the supreme uh, ignominy, if you will, when he lost the 45 election against Clement Attlee from the Labor Party, he was you know, advocating national health care, prosperity. People were tired of war. And I get why people would have voted for him. People said, oh, you know, just, you know, Attlee, what a terrible person he is. And to uh, Churchill, he said, look, I may disagree with his policies, but he's our prime minister. How you dare you speak to him that way? Right. So he was a classic case of a man with unbelievably strong opinions. But he didn't hold it personally. He didn't talk about his adversaries, at least politically, as evil. Right. And, you know, was magnanimous and charitable to them personally. That's really rare. And so that's really, I think, a model of um, don't impugn other people's motives. Right. And the idea, you know, so the first two points that we've kind of talked about here about how do you not treat those who disagree with you as evil. The first, you know, is kind of widening, right? It's opening up the spectrum of our inputs. Uh, Don't assume they're evil. And then as you take in information, don't live in an echo chamber where all on social media or in in news media, you're only consuming those people who, who affirm your beliefs, have people who will challenge those beliefs. The third point that you talk about, Warwick, is so important in interpersonal relationships in particular. And that is the need to listen, which is a critical part, I note, of, in fact, it's a chapter in your book, Crucible Leadership, coming out in the fall from Morgan James Publishing. Indeed. 
there's a chapter on listening. It's a key part of overcoming a crucible, and it's a key part of overcoming this impulse that we have sometimes to think of people who disagree with us as evil. It's it's very true. I mean, you know, obviously it starts with not impugning other people's motives. It helps if you can read stuff online or on TV, view things on TV from people of different perspectives than you. But I think it's inevitable in our day and age we're going to come across actually real-life humans that disagree with us. Right. Because we live in a diverse world of diverse opinion, diverse people groups. So that's where I think it's very helpful to actually listen, to really listen to people, try to understand their life experience, their heritage, their background. You know, we all have different viewpoints for a reason. You know, I can think of the whole, um, I think I briefly mentioned it earlier, uh, the whole uh, urban-rural kind of background. You know, if you grow up in the U.S. in a more rural area, you might be a proponent of, you know, uh, yeah, friends and neighbors will help you, but ultimately you're responsible for your own life, your own job, your own livelihood, the so-called kind of rugged uh, individualism, you know, because it's all about everybody you know, pulling themselves up from the bootstraps. We don't need government. I mean, the whole philosophy goes with that. Well, there can be more of an urban city viewpoint in which there's often been um, systemic uh, racial issues and challenges. I mean, there's obviously that exists in, 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 you know, all areas. But there can be a viewpoint where government's not necessarily bad or evil, and they're there to preserve, you know, to try to promote equality and inclusion and fairness. And people who are impoverished need to be helped. So those are fundamentally different viewpoints, but objectively, maybe there's some elements of truth in both. So rather than just say, oh, people who have this other viewpoint than me are wrong and evil, how about listening to them? If you're from more of a rural area and you meet somebody more from an urban area, so we vote politically very differently, help me understand your perspective. Why do you vote the way you do? Why do you have a perspective on the role of government, which may be fundamentally different than me? Help me understand. And that's just almost never happens. So have a dialogue. And if you approach a dialogue with respect and humility, it's funny, some of the other things I've been thinking about is there are some underlying character characteristics in the sense of character qualities that are important. If you approach this dialogue with somebody who looks different, thinks different, acts different, believes different, from a standpoint of humility, a standpoint of empathy, vulnerability, look, help me understand. If you say, well, help me understand because I know you're an idiot, it's not going to be very effective. But right. If you say, help me understand, and they really believe you do, and you know, keep trying, they might say, like, I, you're so different than me. There's no way you want to understand my perspective or, or my history, which you know, there might be issues that go back hundreds of years or more. If you approach it with humility and empathy, uh, real dialogue can happen, but it requires a certain soul care, soul examination to be able to approach things with humility rather than with anger and self-vindication or vindictiveness. So there's some hard work that has to go first. Because the end goal of that conversation needs to be, right, what can I understand not how can I hammer the other person with my beliefs? It's, you know, we've lost, I think, in some uh, great sense, what argument is truly all about, and that is to try to persuade another person. When we're talking to someone, right, a true argument, like a, 
a rhetorical argument, like a forensics debate, is, is you're trying to convince people. And we've lost that sense, I think, where we want to make clear what we believe, but not listen to what someone else believes. And I think one of the key things to do in these conversations, and you summed it up well, we need to lay our ideology down long enough to get to know the other person's humanity. Because from that, we can learn some things. And learning some things is, again, from a crucible leadership perspective, learning, listening are not just good things, they're essential things to move beyond those moments that can be the most trying of our lives. Yeah, I mean, I can think of an example in my own life that I talk about in, in the book, as you mentioned, coming out this fall, where listening, that whole chapter really was birthed in that life experience in which as listeners know, I grew up in this uh, very large 150-year-old um, family media business with, you know, papers equivalent to the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, TV, radio stations. I was a fifth generation. Turmoil and division in my family going back generations. Uh, so in 1976, when I was 15, some other family members shoot my dad out as chairman of the company. Well, I felt that was wrong, unconscionable. It was very clear to me who was right, who was wrong. My dad was, you know, I loved very much, was a you know righteous person who was persecuted, you know, um, unfairly, and so that was my position. And not consciously, but subconsciously, what led up to the two point two five billion dollar takeover and eleven years later in eighty seven wasn't conscious. Was look what these people did to my father. You know, we need to bring back the company and the ideas of the founder and management's not good. I had this whole perspective and I never really dialogue with other members of my family. Obviously, at 15, that's a bit a lot to expect. <laughs> right. When I was 26, coming back from Harvard Business School, I mean, you know, still young, but I was so convinced by my parents' perspective and their version of history that I knew who were the good guys and the bad guys, who was right, who was wrong. And there was never any dialogue with other family members to say, look, this is what I've heard. My perspective, I'd love to hear what your perspective of why you removed my dad as chairman and what your views of the company and the future. And you know, I never did that. And now I'm thinking, I mean, I still don't think it was right that they threw my dad out as chairman. Maybe there was another way of doing it. But I never really took the time to understand that other perspective. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, I thought a lot about that of not making assumptions about the somebody else's viewpoint. Yeah, and that leads to the next two points, I think, to discuss on, on steps we can take to create a more civil community in both our you know small C community, large C community uh, that you talk about, and you hit on both of them with that example. One is don't impugn other people's motives. And you just acknowledge that you kind of did that with the people who dismissed your dad as chairman. And then seeking to understand, right, maybe at 15, you're, you're not emotionally developed enough to try to understand why it was maybe the decision to have your dad removed as chairman. But those two things kind of go hand in hand, right? This impugning of other people's motives, that's a slippery slope that you can start sliding down that can lead you to say the person who has those, who did those things is evil and seeking first to understand. If you don't do that, you're kind of hitting a brick wall and that's easy to go, that person's evil. Absolutely. Um, yeah, not impugning other people's motives, seeking first to understand. You know, seeking first to understand is a very radical concept. I mean, it's pretty revolutionary. And yep. it's really comes from um, St. Francis of Assisi, who said uh, in his prayer for St. Francis, 
that we should seek more to understand than be understood. Mm-hmm. Now, in some cases, you could say, look, you know, that's crazy. There's been, you know, some cases of systemic persecution for hundreds of years. Are you kidding me? And so I would say this is a general philosophy, how you apply it individually, you know, one could debate. But the basic concept is we tend to go into a discussion if we ever get there, which we typically don't because we stay in our own echo chamber and read our own media. And so we don't even get into a middle ground where we can have a dialogue. If we do, we're there haranguing other people for how they're wrong and evil and we're right and we're yelling at each other. Right. If we get get to human contact with others, it's often yelling and trying to prove we're right. So let's say you happen to get in some ground with other people who are different than you or or think differently. Rather than to say which is easy to say, look, the first thing we need to do is you need to understand me. I need to be understood because unless I'm understood, I refuse to listen to you. You often hear that in our society. And in some cases, maybe there's a fair reason for that. But as a general rule, the bigger man, the bigger woman, uh, the person who has maybe more courage, if you will, more humility, takes a very radical approach and saying, look, you know, I'm pretty angry about a bunch of things, but I am going to park that at the door and I'm going to start with, so look, I know we had different viewpoints. I'd love first to understand why you have that viewpoint. Where does it come from? Talk about your background. What's, you know, is it parents, uh, society, friends and neighbors? Help me understand not just your perspective, but why you have that perspective and you know, why that's maybe part of your heart, identity. You don't have to use all those words, but start with trying to understand the other person first. That is radical. And they might be kind of blown away. It's like, excuse me, you don't want to yell at me. You don't want to give me your your three best points of why your argument is true through my favorite commentators. Really, you're not not starting with that one. You're starting with help me understand. And you've got to do it in humility. It can't be some manipulative game. Right. Because people will pick that up. But that is almost unprecedented and unheard of. It's radical and revolutionary to do what St. Francis advocates. And I will, um, I don't know if this will embarrass you or what it will do, but one of the things I've heard you say more than pretty much anything else is when you describe yourself that you, you interact with people with questions. You have said, right, on more than one occasion, you've said, Warwick, that Someone will say to you after a meeting, well, those are really insightful points that you made, Warwick. And then you'll think what? I'll say, I don't know what you're talking about. I was just asking questions. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I mean, the idea of asking questions, that is rarer, right? And I mean, go to social media, right? We don't ask any questions on social media. Social <laughs> media is a one-way street. I think this, 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 I think this. And then if we deviate off to a side road or an off ramp, it's, and you're wrong if you don't think this. Whereas what you're saying is think in questions, look to understand the other person, find out why they believe that way. And if, I would argue, if you believe the other person, whoever that is, quote unquote, the other side, the other person is evil, that's one of the reasons why we don't want to find out what they think because we don't think it's worth understanding. Back off of thinking that they're evil, that opens you up to wanting to understand what they have to say because they have the same humanity that you have. Absolutely. I mean, it helps to be curious. I like to think I'm a curious person that loves to learn. And I have strong opinions about a whole bunch of things. I would really, 
I typically prefer not to harangue people with my opinions, and maybe in, in my own home where we're chatting about things over the dinner table. <laughs> that's different, but everybody does that. That's fair game. Anybody can feel free to express their opinions. But yeah, I mean, I'm naturally curious, and I think it's to develop as a human being, it helps to understand perspectives of people who are different than us and think differently because it makes us richer, richer people. We learn more. So I think, and that's a high value of me is, uh, I think I've heard somebody talk about uh, one of the podcasts we get, we had on, uh, talked about intentional curiosity. And I love that phrase because I think we do need to be intentionally curious. The world would be a better place if we were more intentionally curious. And that is a great on-ramp to the, the final part of our conversation, and that is what are the benefits? Okay, we've talked about, here's the situation we're in. It is rife with division. We've talked about ways that we individually can help move beyond that division. We can take that crucible that we all find ourselves in with the division in our communities and our country, how we can apply some lessons, how we can apply some tactics, do some things to help tamp down the division. Now comes, what's the benefit of that? Why try to do that? What is the upshot? How does that make us a better place? You know, I really think that uh, unity creates opportunity. And you have to have immense courage in, in our day and age, want to go for unity. Certainly in the political world that we live in is a very good example of the cost of unity. The cost of compromise is massive and very rarely happens. Uh, in this country and in others, certainly here, if you talk to somebody on the other side of the aisle politically and try to form a compromise, you will be seen as a sellout by your mm -hmm. party. And you've got a very high probability of being primaried. And depending on how safe a seat, your, you know, seat is for your side, that primary has a pretty fair chance of winning. So you try and compromise, your political career has a good chance of being threatened, if not over, and you will be assailed in negative advertising by the purists on your side. So the cost of trying to be unity is quite likely to be your job. Well, that's, that takes a lot of courage. Now, sometimes maybe the better angels in your district might say, look, I disagree with my congressman or woman, but you know what? I respect the fact that they stick to their principles. It right. can work, but it's, I don't pretend it's an easy sell. So that's sort of one example. But there's so many things in life that, you know, if we try to just understand the other side, like I think of one um, example, um, you think in the uh, northwest area of the U.S., Oregon, Washington State, there's a big logging industry, and you often have groups, uh, environmental groups that want to protect the climate, which is a noble cause, and, and protect the beautiful forests that are there. And then you have companies and folks that work in the logging industry that say, that's great, but my livelihood depends on being able to cut trees down. So right. you're putting me out of work. I don't have food to put on my family's table to pay the rent. Well, it's also important to try to not put people out of it because people matter too. And so the question is, can you come up with a middle ground in which you both protect people's jobs, but somehow protect the environment too? Each Those sides are not necessarily evil or wrong. Both sides have reasonable 
opinion. So it's too easy to get into this us or them. That's one good example where, you know, just try and say, okay, the other side is not evil. Respect their opinion. It's, like a, it's not easy to square circles. I realize that. But people of goodwill can sometimes find compromises that may not be perfect. Each side will have to give. But, you know, really, without some degree of unity, you get in this endless shouting match, which typically nothing gets done and nobody gets helped. Right. And that's typically what happens in politics in many countries. There's all these things that everybody knows needs to be fixed, but because we're too entrenched in our camps, stuff doesn't get done, whether it's healthcare, the economy, what have you. And so, you know, there can be growth, there can be opportunity if you try to seek honorable compromise. Honorable compromise doesn't mean selling out. It means understanding the other side's perspective and maybe, you know, one on one can equal three. You know, right. and it can be in politics, it could be in business, you know, you can have people that say, well, this is the way we've always done it in this company. And the younger entrepreneurial folks are like, no, but we want to make these great changes. Well, maybe you can preserve the identity, the ethos of the company while still uh, using new technology and maybe there's a middle ground. I mean, this sense of division isn't just politics, it's in business, it's in society, it's in neighborhood, it's everywhere. You know, yeah. try and, to understand the other perspective. And one of the goals I say all the time, uh, is there when you have disagreements on substance, even substantive issues and, and approaches to those issues, is there a patch of grass that we both can stand on where we're able to work toward a common uh, good solution? And the example that comes to my mind when I think of that, is there a patch of grass that we can stand on is the first President Bush, George H.W. Bush, and President Clinton. Now, when President Clinton beat President Bush, there was no love lost. <laughs> there was no love lost between them. President Bush was not happy to be a one-term president. But years later, when President Bush's son, George W. Bush, was president, there was a situation that came up where he brought together his father and President Clinton, and they worked on some missions together for the good of the country. And, and in doing so, they didn't just accomplish things that were good for the country. They became friends to the point that people would suggest, President Bush, the elder, would suggest that he might have been in many ways the father that President Clinton lacked growing up. And President Clinton never corrected him on that. That is an amazing example of finding a patch of grass to stand on that first leads to good policy decisions, first needs, you know, leads to good things for the community and the country, and then leads to friendship. Yeah, Gary, that is an absolutely excellent example. And it really, both men are respected, both uh, former presidents are respected for that. I mean, you know, just to help listeners remember in 92 when you know, the first, uh, you know, President George H.W. Bush lost. That was sort of amazing because he, by most historians' account, handled the first Gulf War well. He united um, NATO and a bunch of countries against what Saddam Hussein did in invading Kuwait. Well, at one point, he had like 80, 90% approval. I mean, it was off the charts. But then, you know, maybe some economy, economic issues, his approval rating fell. And then he had a third party candidate in Ross Perot that, um, you know, siphoned off about 15 percent. 
So if it hadn't been for Ross Perot, uh, there's a pretty good chance Bush would have won. So Bush, you know, could have felt maybe justifiably, this isn't fair, I did a good job. And, you know, I'm a one-term president, which, as we know, nobody wants to be a one-term president. And here's this Bill Clinton, governor of Arkansas. I mean, okay, Rose Scholar, Oxford, smart guy, but he could have felt very miffed and could have taken it very personally. And yet when, as you say, George W. Bush, President H.W. Bush's son, called them to do some relief work, I think it was after the tsunami in Indonesia. Right, right. They became friends, almost like, you know, I think Bill Clinton would joke, yeah, I'm sort of a, you know, son by another mother or a black sheep of the family. <laughs> right, right. joke, he was invited to the Bush compound in Kennebunkport, Maine, and they became friends, which is remarkable that that would happen given the, the you know, I mean, President George H.W. Bush, he minded greatly losing. It wasn't a small thing. And this is the guy that beat him. It's an incredible example of just don't take it personally. They found ways to work together for things they both thought were important. Relief work. And they could not have done that. Let's be clear in the context of what we've been discussing. They could not have done that. President Bush, H.W. Bush, Republican. President Clinton, Democrat very different ideologies, they could not have done that if their ideologies led them to believe that the other was evil. Absolutely. And, you know, I can think of another example you know, of that nature in my own family. Um, my dad, who was, you know, chairman of uh, Fairfax Media, John Fairfax Limited, as then was, I don't know, maybe 40, 45 years, a long period of time. And he was also intellectually curious. He would like to meet with people of different uh, faith perspectives, different political perspectives. And so a friend of his was a former prime minister, Bob Hawke, who was a member of the Labor Party. In fact, when they became friends, he was head of the trade unions. And Bob Hawke was you know, a brilliant man, Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, but certainly his trade union days was seen as pretty left wing. My dad would probably be, you know, was certainly conservative, you know, I wouldn't say rapidly so, but more on that end of the spectrum. So the political viewpoints couldn't be different more different, but yet they became good friends. And yet politically, there's a lot they didn't agree with, but yet obviously they both respected each other's intellect. And um, mm -hmm. uh, so that to me was remarkable that they could become good friends despite the fact they had very different worldviews. Yeah. And I have a similar story in my own professional career. I worked uh, for a nonprofit that had an ideological footprint which it is, doesn't matter. And in sort of stepping on with that ideological footprint, we, I, as a PR guy for that, that organization got in lots of debates in, in media with a, uh, someone who represented another group, which had a different ideological viewpoint. And you could find me and this individual in stories a lot, arguing with one another across the notebook of the reporter in question. <laughs> It turns out that the individual for whom I worked was getting an award and an honor, and there was going to be a ceremony. And the guy with whom I would argue in the press was protesting the honor. And he announced he was protesting the honor. Well, I, you know, I was sick of arguing across the notebook with him. So <laughs> I called him up and I said, hey, we're going to be in the same city. Do you want to have dinner? And we had dinner. 
And we sat down, and one of the things that we discovered is that despite our, our ideology being different, our backgrounds were quite the same. We were both in public relations. We had far more in common, to the point that you make in the blog, we had far more in common than we didn't. The only thing that we really didn't have in common was our ideology. And that wasn't the whole sum and substance of who we were. So fast forward through that experience, we became friends. When I was, he lived in New York. When I would go to New York, I'd stop by, I'd say hi. You know, we would have conversations to the point, Warwick, that when I published my book on you know, sort of my manifesto on what makes good public relations, this individual endorsed it. He endorsed the book and said very nice things about me. Like, I've had the, mis you know, he's a PR guy, I'm a PR guy. He wrote... <laughs> I've had the misfortune of being in PR battles with Gary Schneeberger, and let me tell you, it's no fun because he's the best there is. <laughs> that is the kind of thing that you get when you lay your ideology down and you look at the humanity of someone. I mean, can you and that, can yeah. you think of an endorsement that's better than that? I mean, right. that's the other side saying, "I don't like doing battle with this guy because he's too good. Doesn't feel fair." I mean, you couldn't have written a better endorsement than that, right? Right. And neither one of us to this day have changed our views on the issues that we would have disagreements about in the press. And we had disagreements after we became friends in the press. And but the point was, he didn't think I was evil. I didn't think he was evil. And one of the reasons why that was able to happen is we sat down across a dinner table from one another and just talked as two human beings. Finding the humanity is key. And that's remarkable. I think it's worth listeners pondering this story that Gary shared. Because you met, what would have happened if Gary, you know, in New York from time to time, if he'd never reached out to this guy and said, let's have dinner? What would Gary and this other guy have missed out? A lot. They right. never would have known that they had more in common than they thought. Uh, that endorsement wouldn't have happened. Obviously, there's no way he would have endorsed you without that dinner, without that dialogue. Right. You know, you would have been seen as the enemy. So think of what would have been lost to you and this other person without you taking the remarkable step of saying, let's have dinner, right? right? And even in that context, I remember coming back to work after I did that, had that first dinner, and one of my colleagues came up to me and asked me if I, it, at dinner, said, did you talk to him about the chilling effects of these policy mm -hmm. proposals that he's doing? And I still remember what I said, Warwick. Mm -hmm. I said, I haven't thought about it since then. I still remember what I said to my colleague. I said, no, I did not take the time to whack him with my worldview mallet while I was trying to understand his humanity. And sometimes, many times, you know, there's a time to argue passionately for what you believe. And there's also a time to lay that worldview mallet down and have a discussion, a dialogue that helps you get to the humanity of someone. I think those are words to live by. So listeners, you know, a little role reversal. Just, <laughs> just listen to what Gary just said. Don't whack people with your worldview mallet while you're trying to create a relationship with them and understand them, okay? Think of those words, words to live by. So, so true. Well, I don't know what to do now because that's <laughs> normally what, what I say and then we wrap up. Um, let's wrap, I mean, you know, it is, uh, that's a good place to kind of, you know, put the plane down on the tarmac. What would you, you know, if you summed up, Warwick, this discussion from top to bottom, what do you want listeners to kind of walk away with overall? As we've talked about, here's the situation we face in the country, in our communities right now. Here's some steps we can take to lessen that, to not think of people as evil. Here are the benefits of not thinking of the other side as evil. What's the summary that you want to leave people with? I think 
people who just stay in the people groups, the ideology group, read their own media, read their own, you know, watch their own TV stations, social media, listen to their own people all the time, you're missing out a lot. You know, your viewpoints could grow, evolve, but more than that, your understanding of people who are different than you, think different than you, could grow immensely. Whether, you know, think about this country if people tried, had the courage to, you know, fight the um, underlying interests that make money over division. Think what would happen with our country if you had people willing to listen and work with other people. If enough people do it, and people can see, boy, some good things are happening, then people will begin to not listen to the negative echo chambers that are out there. It just takes a few people standing together for um, principled compromise, uh, principled, you know, what's that uh, center ground, which is good for the country. And, you know, it's not just about the country. Think about businesses. Very often we surround ourselves with people that look like us, that believe that what we do how about having diversity of background, of race, and political viewpoint, and you know, economic, social, every other viewpoint? Respect other people's viewpoints. You might disagree with it passionately, but you know, diversity means diversity in every possible conception of that word. Very few people do that. People, certainly when it comes to ideology, they like mixing even in the workplace. You know, right. workplaces are not that diversified, certainly, you know, in many ways, you know, they're not diversified enough racially or background, but they're certainly also not very diversified when it comes, in some cases, when it comes to political viewpoint. There's tremendous opportunity for growth. I mean, growth often happens when you have diverse viewpoints coming together, brainstorming, and coming up with ideas and solutions that never could have happened if you're just talking to people with your own viewpoint. Okay, now that's good because now the roles are back. You've just, you've just had the last word and I get to rap. So that's great. Um, thank you uh, for that. And thank you, listener, for spending time with us on this episode of Beyond the Crucible. I'm going to add a little bit to what Warwick just said, and I think Warwick will agree with me when I do this, to give you, you know, an extension of the homework that he gave you. Don't whack the other guy with your worldview mallet. And in fact, go out. Find someone, maybe it's on social media, find someone in your business, find someone with whom you have deep disagreements and make it a point to reach out and have a conversation and to truly try to understand them. Ask more questions than you make statements. And that can help deflate a crucible that you might be on the edge of creating or maybe you've already created in terms of relationship. And also it can help knock down, tamp down this divisiveness that we talked about at the top of the show. So until the next time that we are together, please, one, go to crucibleleadership.com to check out Warwick's blog on this. Please hit subscribe to the podcast on the app on which you're listening to it right now. We'd also love it if you'd go and you'd leave a rating. If you enjoy what you hear on Beyond the Crucible, leave a rating, uh, what you think about it. Heck, if you don't enjoy it, you can leave a rating too, but we prefer if you did enjoy it, you left a rating, but anybody can leave a rating. We're not saying what kind of rating you have to leave. leave. But you know, if you find these dialogues to be interesting, go leave a rating at a podcast app and let us know how we're doing. Because that's at the end of the day, that's what we want to know. We want to know how we're doing so that we can make this an experience that you enjoy. And remember, 
until the next time we are together, that your crucible experiences are difficult. They're trying, they're challenging. They do indeed change the trajectory of your life, but they're not the end of your story. They are, in every case, they can be the beginning of your story and they can be the beginning of the best part of your story because where they lead, when you learn the lessons of them, is to a greater destination than you could have imagined before the crucible, and that is to a life of significance. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.